I think it's okay also to like not know what you want at first, uh, but like I think you should try to figure it out as fast as possible. Before you even break into the industry, it's gonna be really challenging to figure out like, oh, what do I really want in a dev job? I think you'll figure it out and I think you just have to be really honest with yourself. That's one thing that I was really lacking. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. My name is Alex and today I'm joined by Mike Chen, a CTO and co-founder who previously worked as an engineer at companies like Yahoo, Google and Airbnb. Mike is one of the most successful self-taught developers that I know of, and his approach to learning to code was nothing but intense. Working a dead-end job, he taught himself to code in an era before Scrimba and FreeCodeCamp and those type of websites. He did an unpaid internship and coded for 9-10 to 10 hours on the weekends. Is this necessary for you to become a top-level developer? Well, that's something Mike and I are going to discuss later in the episode. You are also going to learn from Mike's experience as a hiring manager, specifically hiring junior developers. We'll explore this idea of virtue signaling and how to stand out as a new developer in general. I really enjoyed speaking with Mike and I know you're going to love this episode. Him and I actually collaborated on a YouTube video for the Scrimba YouTube channel where Mike joined us to interview a Scrimba student to like see if they're job ready. So you can check that out in the show notes. And I think it's a good bit of context for our discussion as well. You are listening to the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. I went to university, but I didn't uh, study CS. I studied biochemistry. My intention was to go to medical school. And I worked in clinical research for a little bit and uh, biotech. And I really didn't like it very much. So I decided not to go to medical school and not to make a huge expensive mistake. Decided to self-teach. And back then in 2009, 2010, it was much harder to learn how to code. There weren't resources like Scrimba. YouTube was like not really for teaching, it was for entertainment. And like blog posts and stuff like that. It was very, very difficult. And all I had were books. I bought a bunch of books on Java and object-oriented programming and JavaScript and just read a lot and just tried to figure it out on my own. Uh, was able to land a job at a small startup. Like it was a tiny startup with just 12 people, only two engineers, including me. And uh, yeah, went from there to kind of bigger, bigger companies. Uh, eventually ended up in Silicon Valley where I worked at uh, Google, Yahoo, Airbnb. Uh, and then now I'm back in startup land uh, where I am CTO and co-founder of, uh, of another small startup. That's so impressive. The fact you taught yourself back then when like, yeah, YouTube was about cat videos, right? And, you know, fail videos, less so about how to clone your favorite app with React and stuff like this. But then, yeah, you sort of made your way into Silicon Valley as well, which for many professionals is like a lifelong ambition. Was it the fact that you went to San Francisco for the jobs and the career opportunities or did you just like happen to find yourself there making the best of it? Oh, I was dying to work for Google. When I just started, uh, you know, working at startups, I was like really fell in love with programming. And just to give you a little bit of context about like my career passions, I'm like not a very career minded person at all. When I was growing up, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I got so lucky that uh, programming was both accessible to me without a degree and is really lucrative and uh, like prestigious. And I happen to love it. You know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people getting into it now, it feels like a very um, lucrative thing to do. I think it's a really great career path. And I find that not everyone like loves it, but I happen to love it. And I think that makes me really lucky. When I was working at my startup, I read a lot about Google and like I followed the 
influencers at the time. I, I wouldn't really call them that back then. Who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of Paul Irish, Adi Osmani. Adi Osmani is still, still out there. Oh, yeah. Paul Irish is, I think he's just, a, he's like a PM now at, at Google and doesn't really create uh, tech content. But Adi's still out there, like doing a lot of stuff. Um, and Ilya Gregoric. So these are like kind of like the OG, like DevRel people before I even knew what a DevRel was. But the funny thing is, like, some of the Paul Irish's work and stuff, like, people still come across a little bit today. Like, I see his blog posts just the other day. I don't think it's so relevant these days, but like creating HTML5 shiv and stuff like that. Ah, it's just cool that they inspired you. One of his adages, I still stick to it. It's tools, not rules. So like kind of the idea that instead of relying on people to follow rules, to not make mistakes, you build tooling around it. So like CI checks, um, anything around like, you know, linting and pull requests, making it impossible for people to make mistakes, automated testing, all that kind of stuff. So kind of building guardrails in place in your systems rather than relying on like tribal knowledge, telling people what to do. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of going into detail on this because like this is, you know, something that Paul Irish espoused like a decade ago still holds true. And, you know, I was so I was so enamored with all those kind of influencers back in the day and really make me want to work for Google. It worked. I think I started a little bit later than you and I was never as successful as a developer, by the way. I mean, I never worked at Google, but Adi Osmani really inspired me as well. And I think the way in which he inspired me as a content creator, and this kind of applies to the progression of YouTube too, is that Google, maybe it was Google Chrome developer channel rather than the Google channel or something, uh, but Adi Osmani and crew, there's a few of them, started making like these really high production quality videos around, you know, stuff you would never, up until then, never have expected to see people invest in the production quality of because even when coding videos were starting to emerge it was like just really low 360p resolution quality his problem a his solution b type of thing i love that and it really for me by the way as someone who grew up in the countryside and i never really got to interact with developers i love just getting to watch them work and see how their minds work and see how they interact and things and that totally fueled my ambition as well but obviously different parts of the world i'm more into content you're more into coding you got into google i think in 2014 or around then and although today it's quite commonly understood that Google don't really gatekeep based on computer science degrees. I think back then it was certainly less clear. I'm sure there were some outliers and I think you might have been one of them, but rather than guess, I'd love to hear from you. Like, what was your experience getting into a fan com or mang company, I guess, like Google at the time without a computer science degree? Yeah, you're right that there was like a bit of a turning point around when I was looking. And it's funny. So like I got recruited to Google, sheer luck. Like I got recruited to Yahoo and then I got recruited to Google from Yahoo. And I think, you know, being at Yahoo is how Google noticed me. And they asked me to submit a resume, even though, you know, the recruiter found me on LinkedIn. By the way, I always have a LinkedIn. Like it's crazy to me that there's advice out there being like LinkedIn doesn't matter. Like I hate LinkedIn, but I think it's like extremely valuable. I have no idea why people are telling you not to be on LinkedIn. I found every good opportunity so many good opportunities through LinkedIn. <laughs> Just do it. But yes, yeah, so I got recruited through LinkedIn and they asked me to submit a resume and I intentionally left my degree off of uh, my resume and they said, hey, put your degree on. <laughs> so they still cared. But uh, so I think they maybe we were using it as a signal, but not as like a necessarily like a gatekeeping tactic. I also, I don't know if this is a confession or not, but I got into Google through not like the software engineering role. At the time, it was called a webmaster role, which is like hilariously outdated. It was a hilariously outdated even back then. But I got in through this webmaster role and it turned into another role called creative engineer, which also sounds like a fake role. But uh, I, I transitioned to a role called UX engineering. And so there are different ladders, uh, at least at the time. Uh, I don't know what it's like anymore, but there's still 
UX engineer is still a real ladder. And, you know, the hiring bar is a little different for each one. Uh, like the software engineering bar is very different than uh, than UX engineering or creative engineering. And if you're looking to be a software engineer, you know, at some point in the future, too, you can always transition. And I think that transition is a lot easier than than interviewing. So my experience is kind of like getting in the side door. I'm not sure I would have passed uh, the software engineering interview back then. I think at this point, I probably would. I didn't know as many like data structures and there weren't as many on the interview. It was more practical back then. So I don't think they were like as strict about the degree for creative engineering slash webmastering. And so I think that's partly contributed to my success in breaking in. Can we just understand that a bit more? Like what made it different from the software engineering role? What made a creative engineer a creative engineer? So creative engineering and webmastering is more about like websites rather than web apps. So a lot of what you'll see now is like, you know, people hiring for web apps, people building like a Gmail rather than the marketing site for Gmail, right? So creative engineering was more about the website portion of it. And I think in that sense, it was a little bit easier than a general front end engineer role. Back then, front-end engineering was like kind of seen as like a very much lesser role. And this was very true at the second startup I worked at, where my manager specifically said, I don't think JavaScript is like a real language. And she was actually saying that around the same time when these frameworks started coming out, like we were using Backbone at the time. And I think it like led us to a lot of tech debt because, you know, she wasn't taking it seriously, even though our app was built in essentially JavaScript. Like I saw a lot of this attitude in like kind of the mid 2010s where companies were still like not really taking JavaScript seriously and like single page apps were starting to become like a real thing. We had a lot of like engineers who didn't know uh, JavaScript really well uh, and, and CSS really well. And we still have a lot of engineers who don't know CSS really well. I think we're building bad apps back then because of that. And so I think Google started to think about like front end in like a more holistic way and like kind of like split up these different roles. You know, like I just named three different front end roles like UX engineering, webmaster slash creative engineer, and they also had a front end software engineer role. So they had like three different roles to kind of like describe like three different areas of the stack. Like I think they weren't the only ones starting to think about that as these like, you know, front end frameworks were starting to come about. So creative engineering, like this is my experience with it. Creative engineering was more, like I said, websites. UX engineering was more like UI, UX. There were two different UX engineer ladders. And I apologize if this is getting like too much in the weeds, but I think it's interesting to like kind of see how different companies like deal with the distinction. There were two different UX engineering ladders. One was like more design focused and those were kind of people who were doing prototypes and design. And then one was more engineering. So those are people kind of like building web apps so kind of like limited to the front end. And then there was another front end engineering role, which is I think what most companies would consider full stack is <laughs> just they work on front end. They also work on like the Java layer, uh, but they don't get into like the microservices and like the deep back end like distributed computing stuff. I will be right back with Mike Chan in just a minute. But first, Jan, the producer, and I have a quick favor to ask of you. Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast you like. So if you're enjoying this episode and if you want to help us keep doing what we're doing, please share it with someone. You can share the podcast on socials like Twitter and LinkedIn, on Discord, or even in person. A little social proof goes a long way. And if you're feeling extra supportive, you can also subscribe to the show wherever you 
subscribe to podcasts or wherever you follow podcasts. We don't discriminate. And you can also leave us a five star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is a weekly show. And if you subscribe, you can make sure you will never miss a thing. Next week, we're talking to a new developer who is doing a lot of fun stuff. Rian studies computer science, linguistics and a language. He interned at Microsoft and he also teaches kids how to code in Java and HTML, CSS and JavaScript. So at Microsoft, I was backend. I was like C sharp ASP.net in my free time, which I suppose it's not really free time because I'm working. But I'm working with a research group uh, in my home university uh, called Ober. It's the Irish word to speak. And what we work on is Irish language speech technology. So things like given an arbitrary string of text, let's generate speech. And I'm also working on uh, an AAC device, which is uh, augmentative and alternative communication. It's a tool to allow people who are nonverbal to communicate uh, electronically using the synthesizer. I am really looking forward to this episode, so stay tuned for that. Rian is on next Tuesday. And now we're back to the interview with Mike. Google is such a huge company doing so many things. And I think people forget that sometimes because you will have people who are like contributing to products like Gmail and user interfaces like YouTube come to mind. But then they also have like Google Home and Google Home has like marketing pages, right? And they have other things like Google reviews. And then they give support agents internally tools to help customers with their negative reviews and dealing with conflicts and stuff. And it's just so different and so vast. I think it's hard to generalize what any of these given roles do. Agreed. Yeah. I think the scale of like how many just marketing pages they have, they, they, you know, they translate things into like 66 languages when I was there, even just like the translation architecture for these marketing websites was like a team on its own, you know, and it's hard to kind of like grasp the scale of it when you're just looking at it from the outside. But uh, yeah, like it was really fascinating to be inside and like seeing all the different people necessary to kind of just like produce this one marketing site for, you know, Google. Google Cloud. Sounds like the experience of a lifetime, to be honest. Like, I'm sure you're very happy for the experience and the, the things you learned. But ultimately, you know, you decided to go back into the startup world. And I was interested about your perspective as a developer. I mean, it sounds like, okay, yes, you preferred working at startups, but can I ask why? And what would you recommend to new developers? Like, should they pursue mid-sized businesses, huge businesses, or maybe startups? I, and like, this is, you know, based on outdated Intel. Like, by the way, if anyone gives you advice about what to do with your career, you have to always keep in mind that like, this is just what they did. And they have an entirely different set of goals than you do. And they were living in a different time than you were. I'll give that kind of caveat. Even for my advice, you should always remember that, you know, I'm giving advice based on my perspective and, you know, what worked for me. I think everyone should go to Fang if you get the opportunity. I don't think, uh, you know, you should like trip over yourselves to get into it. But if you're given the opportunity, like it's crazy to me that people would say, turn that down because it's like not a big deal. It's not as prestigious. I agree. Like you should kind of temper your goals. But for me, you know, going to going to Google was like the opportunity of a lifetime, not even just like me working there, but the opportunities that I had after that, like anyone will give me an interview now because I went to Google and like whether it's fair or not, it's like besides the point, like I actually think it's not, you know, I've worked with many people in my the course of my career and like, you know, some of them were good and some of them were, were bad uh, or like, you know, not as good, even at Fang. But I think it's just such a good opportunity to kind of like get a big name on your your resume 
and to see what kind of opportunities happen after that. So even just for the name recognition, I feel bad like perpetuating and like being an apologist for like kind of this like prestige based like recruiting method. But it is the reality of it. Like I'm kind of just giving advice based on that reality. I kind of mentioned like the coolness of kind of being involved in this machine of all this different stuff that happens at a global scale. But I think the downside of that is not really feeling like the ownership of just like the craft, you know. So for me, I really like kind of just building something from beginning to end. It's really hard to do that at Google. Um, it's really hard to just like, you know, start with nothing and and create something. You're always kind of relying on other people and like the systems that are in place. And I think that there's something really magical about creating something from scratch that didn't exist at all before. And now it exists. And that's honestly why I got into programming in the first place. My very first app that I created was this flashcard app for my girlfriend at the time. She was studying for her GREs and I created this app and I did it from nothing. And I, it was just like such a magical experience to just like sit down at my, at my keyboard and just like create something. I didn't feel that at Google or at any other big company that I've ever worked at. I wasn't really like feeling like I was creating. I was just like part of something. And I think that's cool. And like, I think it's got its own, uh, you know, positives. But uh, in the end, I think it was just like a personality thing. It's just it wasn't for me. I like that, man. I wish I knew I could impress girls with my coding skills <laughs> earlier in life. Yeah, I, I think that there's just that creative aspect of it that, you know, allows you to give gifts. <laughs> if you make something cool for someone, I feel like that's worth more than, uh, you know, just buying something. Doing something yourself allows you to do that uh, from start to end. I make light of it, but I completely know what you mean. And for some reason, it always seems to be for a partner or something. But a friend of mine I used to work with for uh, his anniversary, he built his girlfriend a digital version of a game she used to play as a kid, which I just thought was awesome. And I forget their name. This person's more prolific. I think they're like a course instructor. And this is going back a few years now. But they proposed to their girlfriend using an app, essentially, which I think, again, if it's, uh, if it's what you're into, like, I think that I don't think my girlfriend would like that, but I think it was is really cool. The real point you're making here is that like, you know, this was your passion, right? Like building stuff from beginning to end, feeling ownership of it, having autonomy, right? Getting to choose a little bit what you work on and, and how you do it. And oftentimes in a, in a conglomerate, you're, you're something of a small cog in a big machine and you're often tasked with quite specific things rather than exploratory things, which doesn't suit everybody. Uh, but conversely, a startup, pretty much nobody knows what they want and what they're doing. So you get a lot of chance to not only explore, but make a big impact in the process. And it sounds like that's what suited you. And it is an individualistic choice, right? Like maybe you have to try both. Maybe you can rely on what you know about yourself. Maybe you make a strategy. Like I like your strategy a lot. Like you're so right. If you can get a big company like Google on your resume. And I, and I know about this prestige hiring because I've not worked at Google and had someone reach out to me, but I've worked with hiring managers and leaders who've actually been like, oh, we've got this candidate in the pipeline from Google and they're super excited about it, but they don't necessarily uh, talk about anything else, just their credentials. So I totally get that as a strategy. Um, but yeah, startups suit some people more, I guess. Honestly, as a hiring manager, I understand it a little bit more like, you know, it's a shortcut seeing that this company was on a resume. It's a shortcut to like kind of getting a little bit of signal about, you know, how good this person is as an engineer. And, you know, when you're trying to hire, you know, time is really precious. I get like hundreds of hundreds of applications for every single role for my like no name company, you know, by the way, my, the name of my company is Motivo. We'll link it in the show notes. I just want to be clear too that like, you know, Google wasn't for me, but you know, I say this a lot that even if like present day Mike went back to 2010 Mike and was like, Hey, I know you want to work for Google, but like, it's going to disappoint you. <laughs> I still wouldn't have listened. I would have had to like see for myself. And so I think everyone should, you know, see for themselves and see whether they enjoy it or not.
some people like that's all they want to do. And I don't think that's good either. I don't think that's healthy. So I think like finding that balance of like, if you're interested, try and get in, but don't let it be this like unattainable dream that you put on a pedestal because that's what it was for me. And it took me a while to like kind of get out of that mindset when I decided I didn't like it. Some people, they associate working at these big companies as being successful and they associate everything else as less than. For most people, it's about prestige. And you've used that word a few times. I think development is a very prestigious career, actually. Like we don't always recognize that, but I tell people I know how to code and be like, oh, you know how to code? Like they're always a little bit impressed by it. And uh, at the same time, once you're in the industry, you don't appreciate how you know you can code and how special that is. You're kind of comparing yourself now with other developers. And for, you know, I think a lot of people now have heard stories about kids being pushed by their parents to do something they never wanted to do, like dentistry or medicine or whatever else it might be. Eventually it all comes crumbling down because they were never that keen on it in the first place. They were just doing it to appease someone else, I suppose. And the same is true for your career as a developer, like what's far more valuable, what burns a lot cleaner and longer in terms of energy and motivation is like your intrinsic motivation. And if you can articulate that somehow and nurture it and get to the bottom of your reason why, like what is your purpose? What do you believe in? What do you enjoy? doing, you can probably create a checklist of the things you want from a job and a career, and you can satisfy that checklist with probably hundreds of different companies and teams and equally get compensated very well in the process. I love that mindset. I think that's such an important thing. I think it's okay also to like not know what you want at first, uh, but like I think you should try to figure it out as fast as possible. I think like before you even break into the industry, it's going to be really challenging to figure out like, oh, what do I really want in a dev job? I think you'll figure it out. And I think you just have to be really honest with yourself. That's one thing that I was really lacking. You know, I had that introspection when I first started and then I was so goal oriented that I lost that for several years. And I probably gave Google more of a chance than I should have. Uh, and like maybe maybe could have saved some time if you are really thoughtful about what you're looking for. I think you can be happy at a number of different places. I would also say the best way to kind of like be taken down a peg is to go work at like fan companies in Silicon Valley itself, because when you are there, like everyone you meet works at a fan company and it seems like very not a big deal at all. And I think, you know, even in like the startup land in Silicon Valley, it's looked down on to work at uh, these fan companies because it's like taking the easy cushy way out rather than, you know, really like working hard. Like, and, and this is another thing. Thing is like kind of that like grind mindset, which is also bad. But I think it's like, you know, a bit humbling to feel like, oh, I got to Google and like I'm like the king now or like, you know, I'm royalty now. And then to just meet everyone that already works there. And it's like not a big deal. You're like one in 20,000 at least. And yes, <laughs> I've been on like work trips to San Francisco uh, and the Bay Area. And like you go to a bar and you're just like meeting strangers and you're like, hey, what do you do? And like every other person is like, oh, I work at Oracle. Oh, I work at Microsoft. Like it's actually kind of hilarious when you think about it. Yeah, it's really hard to be in a coffee shop without seeing someone talking about coding, without hearing about some investor talking to some founder. And they have the backpacks and the jumpers and the stickers. You see it everywhere, don't you? Yes. My wife is commenting on how we live in Seattle now. And just like when you look around, people are like dressed in like work clothes. And in the Bay Area, no one's dressed in work clothes. Everyone is just like wearing hoodies and tech backpacks and stuff like that. It's a very stark difference. That's hilarious. And like sneakers and skateboards and boosted boards. I love it. We don't have too much time left. I really badly want to shift the topic a little bit into sort of advice for new developers. The first thing you mentioned is like virtue signaling and how, for example, having a prestigious company on your resume 
resume, like Google can certainly signal to people that you've already been vetted and that they can trust you a bit quicker. I was wondering, as a new developer, how can you achieve something similar? I'm thinking roughly along the lines of certain ways of approaching your portfolio or building a bit of a reputation online, for example. Do those things realistically help a new developer without a degree? And you know, how can they go about doing that, would you say? A lot of what I look for when I hire people is I want to kind of like know that you care (laughs) for a lot of technical skills. You can teach those on the job and you will teach them on the job. Like there's so much that you'll learn on the job that you won't learn beforehand. Like you just you don't have that much time to do it beforehand if you're like working some other job. Right. And like learning on the side. But you can't teach people how to care about something. You know, like I think that is something that is really valuable to me is like just getting signal that they care. It doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you need to code, you know, 25 seven. It's just about showing that you actually like what you're doing. And I think also this is something that I feel pretty strongly about. I don't think you should have to like programming later on in your career, but it really helps if you're learning from scratch and you're not that good at it yet and you need to get better. It really helps to like it. And I like seeing, you know, like newer developers that like programming because it kind of gives me um, good confidence that they're going to push through when it gets hard. Kind of this idea of like passion is is such an interesting concept because when you're very competent, you don't need to be passionate. You can get your work done like and just go home and it's not a big deal. But when you're just starting out, I feel like it makes a really big difference. And this is you know something true for like every single like developer that I've come across who feel like is like, you know, exceptional or like, you know, significantly above average, almost all of them went through like a phase in their their lives when they were just like studying all the time. You know, I feel like that's like, you know, a bit of like work glorification. But, you know, I think if you want, it's like very unpopular to say, I feel like these days that if you want outsized like success and you want outsized like skill, you need to put an outsized effort. And I, I feel like that's very unpopular these days. Uh, it feels very like capitalist to say, but at the same time, I feel like it's been my reality that like I put in the time when I was younger and now I need to work not as hard because I'm better at the, you know, the craft, you know? And so, yeah, that, that's kind of my, you know, advice to, to people is, you know, having a portfolio. I don't necessarily think like the social media stuff, like very, very much helps. Like, I think, you know, writing about what you're learning is really helpful to kind of show what are you actually learning and like kind of sharing that with other people. But I think like the portfolio stuff, you know, in the absence of like other signal, that's really helpful for me to see that like, hey, you know how to solve problems with code. I think it's been said many times before, but just like build things, it kind of kills two birds with one stone. When I'm looking at new developers, I'm worried about their skill level. I'm worried about like their longevity and people out there building projects really shows me that they can do this and that they like it. Those are two things that I really look for in new developers. You want to see a demonstrable track record. Like it's not something they've kind of picked up and slugged through, but rather not just that they have a track record, but also they still have momentum and you can see that they genuinely enjoy it. And that's probably a great sign that they're like intrinsically motivated and they're going to keep putting in the work to get to the level they need to be to be successful in the role. Um, I also completely resonate with what you say, but like, okay, if you're starting point is that you're kind of dull about coding and you're like, oh, I don't know, I just want a job kind of thing. You know, where are you going to go from there? Like you're only going to go down and that can't be a good thing. But if you do start with a huge amount of enthusiasm, I mean, over the course of years doing the same thing, it might, it might not deteriorate a little bit or you find new ways to make it inspiring and interesting for yourself. 
Uh, you, for example, you mentor others, and I think that's one way you keep this uh, this role and what you're doing interesting. But also, what you said is, com- I, I think, reigns completely true. That the more you've been doing it, the more skillful you are at it, the less time you can spend doing uh, solving the same problem. But yeah, am I understanding you more or less? I think that's pretty much what I'm saying. You know, like I, I recognize my privilege. Like I understand that like I, you know, was given like a lot of really good opportunities early on in my career. And I know it's much harder to do that now. And I also know that it's a painful journey into development. I didn't really talk too much about how much I worked back then. I had a full-time job. I studied about like four to six hours a night on weekdays. I did an unpaid internship to try to get some experience. I probably studied like nine to 10 hours on the weekends. And that is draining. <laughs> so I very, very much empathize with people who are like trying to break into the industry. My, I think my my whole like timeline was about from like start to finish was like nine to 11 months. But I know some people who have been at it for like year and a half, like two years, even more than that. And so I totally get being too tired to really like kind of give off that passion. And so I understand if people are like, you know, listening to me and being like, oh, it's easy for you to say. But I think, you know, as much as you can do that, I, I would. To the point about like not having to work, you know, as hard later in your career, my passion has waned over the course of time. Like it's almost impossible for that not to happen, I feel. Actually, that's not true. I know people who like it pretty much as much as they did when they first started. But I think if you put in the work at the beginning, I would say that I could probably pass for like a senior engineer uh, at like a big company with like three to four hours of work a day (laughs) if I'm like working from home. But the only way that I could do that is because I put in so much time to get fast, to learn how to think quickly and to write code quickly. And so if that is your goal, like eventually in life to work less, then put in the work now. It's a very delicate subject these days because the narrative is very much about self-care, avoiding burnout, doing things sustainably, long-term consistency over short-term intensity. I have found myself starting to buy into this stuff and I do believe it's possible for me to be a high performer in the long term whilst doing that because I often get very excited about something and then unfortunately on the long, long-term project, that initial excitement can kind of fade. And so I found that once I entered the workforce, sustaining myself and pacing myself has worked a lot better overall and I can be a better performer, better teammate, better contributor. But when I was learning to code, I I took that very intense approach. I was quite fortunate to be able to do that because I was a teenager. I didn't have to work necessarily. Uh, I had to pay like a very small amount of like money towards bills and rent and stuff, but nothing compared to what some of my guests and successful students I've spoken to have had to do, like supporting a family alongside their learning and stuff like that. But yeah, I took like a very intense approach, much like yourself. Like the weekends weren't really a thing. I would like seriously have a disciplined schedule and I would just try and cram as much as I could out of every day. And to be honest, like when I reflect on it, it wasn't because I was like super disciplined or anything, to be honest. Like I was mostly kind of scared, I think, because, you know, once you go down this path long enough, you sort of are all in and you've told everybody I'm going to be a developer and you don't have a backup plan. And I think I was just kind of scared to like realize that. And I can't say I burned out in that case because I also did deeply love problem solving and I loved getting better at something actually meaningful instead of like, you know, quick scoping on Call of Duty or something. Like I was actually getting good at something that can make a difference. I guess everybody's a little bit different 
people have different temperaments and stuff as well. Like that doesn't work for everybody. Some people prefer to learn to code alongside their job and find a way to make it work, but allocate more time to do it. And a lot of the time it comes down, like we said earlier, to your kind of intrinsic motivation. I'm like gradually revealing my journey like throughout the course of this podcast. Like this advice has worked well for me financially, but I also lost something. In those years when I was like grinding, like I remember my brother at one point said, he invited me to go to a movie and I think he was really bummed that I kept saying no. And we had to have a conversation where I was just saying like, you know, every day that I don't put in this effort is like another day I have to like stay at like my dead end job, you know? And like, I, I felt this urgency about it that I think, you know, hurt my relationships. It hurt my hobbies. And so it is a little bit hard for me to like kind of not backtrack on that advice. But I think like now that I have kids and stuff like that, and I want to work at like a comfortable salary, it, it's a little bit easier for me to do that because of the time I spent kind of like becoming more efficient back then. It is a really tough trade off. And I want to just like, you know, kind of pitch both sides of it. I also think that like a lot of the advice that I see around like this whole like quiet quitting concept, which is just crazy to me that this is like a term that is being used to like just do the your job requirements and not like that's just like working, you know, like in my opinion, quiet quitting is just like working. Right. But for me, you know, I always wanted to like climb the ladder because I wanted to have like more financial security and also get better at the craft. And so I had those motivations to doing it. And I feel like tech is one of the very few industries where if you put in more time to get better at what you're doing, it will pay off. That's definitely not true in every industry. There are so many industries where you can put in like 80 hour weeks and it doesn't earn you any more than 40 hour weeks. I feel like with tech, I just want to be clear that like it doesn't mean like, oh, putting in more hours to like solve a couple extra tickets at your like junior engineer job. It means like going home and like studying and like really brushing up on those things that you had trouble with and like getting better at problem solving, getting more efficient at like your editor, like just really like being strategic about the actual things that you're spending your time on rather than like earning your company a little bit more money. I'm not saying just like grind it out like mindlessly, but really like being strategic about your learning. If you do that, I think you will get rewarded for it in the long run. And that's the only reason I advocate for it. Like I wouldn't do that for like retail. Like if you're working retail, I feel like, you know, there's only so much you can do to move up the ranks. Fundamentally, you are a problem solver and you're building a specialist knowledge and you have so many paths within coding, right? So you could over the course of a decade develop deep specialized knowledge about one thing. And then you can solve a problem in a few hours that only you or a few others can solve, but it would take everybody else hundreds of hours. And why should you get paid less to do that, right? Just because you'd invested all that time to do it fast. You know, it might say, why should we pay you so much? It only took you an hour. And it's like, do, do you want me to spend a hundred hours doing it instead? They probably wouldn't want that either. Okay. So there's a few things we could go into there. Like there are so many powerful things in tech as to what you learn and how you approach your career. Um, you might just get really good at doing one thing. You might become a generalist and that affords you the flexibility to work at lots of different types of companies that suit your other interests and passions. I love that about tech. But above all else, you are building knowledge that no one else can take away from you. You are truly investing in yourself. And it's very hard to code day in and day out and, and not get better at it and not to go deeper into it and not to become quicker, more experienced. We spoke a little bit about how, you know, in a sense, if you have a lot of experience as a developer, you can work a bit less and get paid the same. And maybe you choose to take your foot off the gas. This is a privilege you unlock. You can take your foot off the gas in your career to focus on family and stuff while sustaining an income. But if you are still ambitious, things might not get any easier, but you certainly go a lot faster and you can do bigger, better things, make a bigger impact, 
do things you believe in. I just think all these things are so powerful about learning to code and however you approach it, whether it's intense or long-term, it's certainly worth it, isn't it, Mike? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, something I got used to being in Silicon Valley, like just the idea that you can make 400, 700, a million dollars a year if you get good enough at your job. That's not true for like almost any, like, yeah, maybe like finance or something like that. But yeah, this is one of the few industries where there's like almost no cap on like how much you can make. And obviously I think, you know, like you have to work at a healthy company that like kind of respects your skills. Or like you said, you can try to find a job where you work less. There's so many different options because if you are good at development, like there's going to be almost like an unlimited supply of jobs that you can get. We're so almost out of time, but I have one last question. And it's about the fact that for all your success, you now spend a lot of time helping others. Like you came on this podcast, you did a mock interview with me. We've done a lot of Twitter spaces together. You've done a lot without me. You've also published a lot of blog posts and you live stream, not only sort of doing the code, but you engage a lot in the chat and, and helping people. You know, as far as I can tell, this has got very little, if anything, to do with like money. It seems to be something about which you're passionate and like to pay forward. And just in closing, I kind of wanted to understand like, why are you so motivated to help everybody? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, I think it is kind of that self-taught nature of my breaking into the industry. When I came into the industry, I was hired by, I would say, one of the top two best mentors I ever had in my entire career was like my first one. And he was so like smart and knew like everything. And I, I still to this day, like not sure why he hired me. Like I basically didn't know that much PHP, um, but I did the coding challenge in like JavaScript. And even though like the job was mainly PHP and he saw something in me that led him to hire me and like coach me up and like work with me really closely. I got paid very little, by the way. So this was like they're doing me like a huge favor. But my mentor, at least like he was really like a huge value add to my life. Before I broke into tech, I found this like email thread that I had with someone who like I basically heard like this is still like the uh, the message today is like get into open source. And so I heard like I'm going to get into open source. I'm going to try to like write some code for Chromium, this like C++ um, open source project that, you know, Google Chrome runs on. And I was like trying to get the dev environment set. There's no GitHub back then. I was like everything was like kind of like these different like repos. And I was trying to like get the repo onto my machine and like get the C++ like stuff to compile. I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember having this uh, conversation with this one guy who was working on the project. I found it in my Gmail, this like 30 thread long conversation with this guy who was like trying to help this new engineer get up to speed on this uh, on this open source project. He was just so patient with me. That's basically it is like, you know, kind of remembering back then that, you know, people had to take a chance on me. And I see this like happening now with like all these people who are trying to get into tech and it's really hard. It's really, really hard. There's so much competition. You know, I always remember back, you know, the time when like someone had to do the same for me and I try to do the same for other people. And we appreciate it so much, Mike. I've had a blast like jumping on events and doing uh, videos and now this podcast with you. Thank you so much for joining me and spending uh, some time with me and the Scrimba listeners. It's been a super inspiring, super impactful, and I hope it was really fun for people to listen to because I had a lot of fun speaking with you today. Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. I really appreciate it. And I hope I am not canceled for my pro work mentality. <laughs> 
That was Mike Chen. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out the show notes for all the ways to connect with him and the resources mentioned in this interview. We also did a couple of YouTube videos with Mike and I'll be linking them all in the show notes, which reminds me, if you can still hear the ad after the intro, you can also be in a video with him. So check out the show notes for that. If you haven't heard the ad, well, keep listening to the podcast and you will hear about a next opportunity when it arises. The podcast is hosted by Alex Booker out of London. You can find his Twitter handle in the show notes. I'm your mildly nomadic producer, Jan. And as you're listening to this, I'll be going back to the Netherlands where I'm based out of after five weeks on the road. Where are you listening from? Tweet at us and tell us. And don't forget to share what you've learned from the pod. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.